Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. And happy St. Patrick's Day. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastock, and this week we've got a special Irish treat for you at the end of the episode, so stick around. We're also talking to Pankaj Mishra, whose new book cuts right to the heart of the anger we've seen in the U.S. and abroad by going all the way back to the Enlightenment. There's been this huge gap, uh, which is not just of income, but also of opportunity, and the same story you see in large parts of, of the world today. So we are looking at a kind of problems of uneven growth, which aggravate this historical divide that Rousseau identified in the late 18th century. First, though, we're talking to Ronald Rael, who has some ideas about President Trump's proposed wall along our southern border. Some pretty transgressive, radical ideas that challenge the idea of what a wall even is. His new book is Border Wall as Architecture, a manifesto for the U.S.-Mexico boundary, which is really difficult to categorize. It's serious, playful, critical, conceptual, and hilariously literal all at the same time. It's a look at how we can dismantle the boundaries that separate us, physical, spatial, emotional, cultural, environmental, by using architecture to transform them. Thanks for talking to me, Ron. Robble little fence to its current incarnation? Sure. There's there's always been an attempt to demarcate the border in some ways. And so some of the first demarcations were in the form of, of piles of rocks and later a series of monuments that were placed along the border from California to Texas. And then, of course, people have put up fences mostly to keep out uh, cattle. But over time, there was an increased... Uh, let's call it uh, militarization of the border or increased strategies to just define one side or another using something more tangible, things like fences and and later walls. And this this really picked up during the Clinton administration and later, of course, in the Bush administration after 9-11 as a strategy for combating terrorism. So in, in 2006, the Secure Fence Act was passed. And that put into place funding for several hundred miles of construction along the border. So it really evolved rather quickly. Right. There were walls in places in urban areas. Some of the most famous ones are the dividers in Tijuana, where the wall is made out of Vietnam-era landing strips, these metal 
surfaces that helicopters would land on during the war. But it was really after 2006 that hundreds of miles of wall were put into place and constructed. And what are those other parts of the wall made of? Yeah, well, the wall's made out of a, a lot of different kinds of materials, and it has a lot of different, um, let's say, functions. There are walls that are designed to keep out vehicles. Those are called vehicle barriers. There are walls called uh, pedestrian barriers, and those are meant uh, to be difficult to climb, and sometimes those have a very tight spacing of material, sometimes perforated metal. Um, in other cases, they're much more like fences, like chain-link fences, or, or in some cases they're steel spaced every, you know, with a four-inch gap, and that goes on for miles and miles. So an enormous amount of steel, concrete in some places, that's used as levees to hold back rivers. It's not really one single wall, but it appears and disappears throughout the border. But there are also, let's say, technological walls, walls that are made out of surveillance equipment or uh, uh, sensors, motion sensors, uh, infrared heat sensors, that sort of thing. Right, not to mention the the people who are patrolling that wall and acting as sort of like a personal barrier. Yeah, exactly, a kind of human wall. Yeah. So the wall that Trump wants to build and for which the design window is closed already, I think is a design for more of a homogenous style wall. But in your book, Border Wall is Architecture, you've sprinkled throughout little design ideas they're pretty radical imaginings of what this wall could be, and they appear throughout in little snow globes. Um, some of them are really transgressive. It seems like there's a climbing wall. There's a fog wall that would capture water molecules for hydrating the desert. There's a wastewater treatment wall, a library wall. Can you talk a little bit about your thought process for creating these ideas? Sure. Um, I guess first I want to say that uh, this isn't a book that is condoning or endorsing wall construction. Sometimes I build upon this famous quote by this architect, Hassan Fathi, who said that architects don't design walls, they design the spaces between them. And initially, when I embarked upon this project, what I was doing was thinking about the wall that was about to be constructed uh, after the Secure Fence Act and wondering how one could create strategies that worked alongside the wall that would ameliorate the consequences of the wall. And in some cases, those are proposals that are investigating the kinds of budgets that are put forward. So in some cases, the wall costs $16 million per mile. So if you measure it in comparison to other kind of cultural investment, uh, recently the, the High Line, for example, in New York, which is an amazing urban park, uh, you could buy 500 miles of the High Line for $45 billion. So that's sort of where some of these projects emerged from. They emerge from looking at actual budgets and what are alternatives to a wall, but also looking at how ridiculous it might be to construct a wall in the first place. And in that ridiculous context, what other kinds of ridiculous things might be imagined that might uh, challenge the nature of the wall? So that's, that's, I mean, I think that's part of the premise and the concept behind a lot of these proposals. What's your favorite ridiculous, transgressive challenge to the nature of a wall? Oh, one of my favorites is uh, an artist named Glenn Wayant, who's down in Tucson, Arizona, who, who plays the wall like a musical instrument. He goes there quite frequently and plays it, and in the playing of the wall, he's dismantling it. So many of these ideas kind of work towards 
conceptually dismantling the wall. Yeah, I think a lot of these concepts really work well as metaphors. The xylophone one is one of my favorites, too, because you start out that segment with this excerpt from The Simpsons, this anecdote where Lisa replies to Homer, who's saying, I share your xylophobia. Right. And Lisa says, no, Dad, you mean xenophobia. Xylophobia would be the fear of xylophones, which is like a pretty good commentary on the terrible state of affairs we have here. Yeah, and... and... In that, I mean, I think it's always interesting how the wall has now become part of our popular culture. And so the wall appears on commercials now, commercials for hamburgers or beer. And so some of these take on the wall as kind of a cultural construct, like the volleyball wall, for example. Volleyball has been played over the wall since the 70s. And so it's, it's just kind of funny how it's always been this kind of architecture that has brought people together, despite its intended purpose to keep people away and apart. Right, right. I think one of my favorite examples of that was um, the tortilla wall that you then turned into the burrito wall, because the there is a, a stretch of wall that's already known as the tortilla wall. Right. So a lot of these, um, these recuerdos or souvenirs in your book function that way. They're mixes of truth and history and imagination. Um, and then there are some some darker turns too. Like there's an illustration of a Tanano Autumn cemetery that was divided by the wall. How did you manage to maintain your sense of humor? I guess throughout this book, that lightheartedness, even though it's such a dark subject. Well, I think there the wall is a very complex form of architecture. In, so, in some ways, one could read it as very simplistic and reduce it to just a line in the sand or a wall that has two sides. But it's cutting through some very rich and complex environments with amazing histories. And, and so there is, a, there is a kind of beauty that the wall reveals when it makes that cut through these environments. And the wall itself, and, and sometimes this is for, difficult for me to describe and to say, but the wall itself is, is kind of horrifically beautiful. It's this enormous line of steel that cuts through the landscape. And so from a distance, there's kind of beauty uh, to it. And then there is also a ridiculousness to the wall as well. The fact that um, a couple of girls demonstrated that you can climb over the wall in 14 seconds. And even last week... A politician from Mexico decided to climb up onto the wall and just kind of broadcast messages to Donald Trump. I mean, it serves as a, a literal kind of platform to demonstrate how useless it can be in some instances. And so, in some ways, you can't help laughing at it. I hope that's fair to say. I think so. And it's it's also sort of a it seems like such a ridiculous endeavor, too, because we've been building this wall higher and higher and stronger and stronger now for a couple decades, and people keep coming through it. And there's that quotation somewhere in your book about um, someone said, you know, you show me a 10-foot wall and I'll show you like an 11-foot ladder. Right. Right. And, yeah. and so, so there's always going to be a way around the wall, whether it's it's nature or whether it's wildlife or, or people. Um, there's always something creeping across the wall. Part of these proposals suggests that maybe there's an alternative to building walls, and that would be thinking about how architecture and design can be brought to the border and take on some of the challenges in very different ways. 
If the president's Twitter feed is any guide, or the thousands of people flooding town halls across the country, anger is on the rise in the United States. And around the globe, if we look across the ocean to Brexit, or the increasingly fascist Polish state, the rise of Narendra Modi, Rodrigo Duterte, Recep Erdogan, or name your semi-dictatorial state leader, not to mention the Buddhist-led genocide of the Rohingya in Burma. In The Age of Anger, A History of the Present, Pankaj Mishra locates the root of all this anger, not in 2016, or 2008, or even 1908. He goes all the way back to the Enlightenment, where, he says, we find the precursors to these individuals who feel left behind by the modern world today. Those who came late to the new world of rationality, secularism, and democracy, or those who could never take part in the first place, and who now feel excluded from acquiring material and intellectual wealth that the elites have hoarded. And now those people are lashing out. Thanks for joining me, Pankaj. Yes, thank you very much. So firstly, why did you write this book, and when? It seems so prophetic. Well, that's very kind. Um, I don't really uh, claim any kind of prescience. I was simply observing uh, certain political events as they unfolded in India and in different parts of the world over the last decade or so. And I noticed that the far right was exploiting the fears and anxieties of large numbers of people who felt left behind, not only by economic growth or by rich people, but who also felt at the same time disdained and scorned by a new elite consisting of mm, politicians, businessmen, technocrats, and indeed journalists. Then witnessing the absolutely shocking election victory of Narendra Modi in India in 2014, a man who should be in prison, ideally, uh, was elected the prime minister with a large majority. Uh, people, including members of my own family, voted for him. And um, I felt that, you know, this was for me uh, the the ultimate stimulus, as it were, um, for this book. And, and I felt I had to really sit down and examine this strange political moment and examine the principles of the modern world that we live in today, uh, a world defined by free trade, by economic expansion, by increasing intellectual sophistication, when this whole world, its principles were being formulated. So just to stick with the present for a second, why are we seeing this revolt now against globalization? It seems like in this interconnected, prosperous world, everyone is more literate, more interconnected. They're wealthier than they've ever been. Why are liberal capitalism and democracy failing when it seemed just 28 years ago after the Berlin Wall that, that it was inevitable that these things would succeed everywhere? Well, that's a very good question because I think uh, it goes right to the heart of a paradox, uh, which is that it's only when you see the possibility of progress, it's only when you actually feel that there is a very real possibility of improving your life chances uh, for yourself and for your children, it's only then uh, the possibility of political disorder also becomes very real. Uh, because when people start to prosper, when they start to experience a degree of socioeconomic mobility that their ancestors have not enjoyed, 
their expectations rise. And when those expectations are not fulfilled in time or if they're not fulfilled at all or pe people feel that their way is being blocked, then their dissatisfaction and anger can turn very quickly politically toxic, as we've seen. You know, so much of life in recent decades has been defined by this notion of continuous progress, of things getting better all the time. But the problems have to do with, with, with mobility in general, uh, because there was a lot of movement, there was a lot of mobility in the last two, three decades. Um, and a lot of promises made too to many different kinds of people around the world, not just to Americans, but also to hundreds of millions of Indians and Chinese that you know they will be soon be enjoying a lifestyle at the same level as a few hundred million people in Europe and America. And uh, for most people, these promises have proved to be false and unrealizable. And that is where ressentiment is generated, when people feel that that this specific promise of equality is betrayed by the fact that a tiny minority has acquired um, not just wealth, but more intellectual capital, more cultural capital, and that they are in a position now to be utterly indifferent to the lives of the people around them. Why did you start at the Enlightenment? Why didn't you go to the Industrial Revolution, say, or back even further to the Renaissance? Well, I think uh, the ideals of the modern world um, that we inhabit today were most precisely identified in the late 18th century in France, Britain, the United States. Uh, this whole project of the individual as this rational being who makes certain choices, is, is, is empowered to make certain choices by a certain kind of education. All these ideas really, you know, become in a way dominant in a way they were never were, not, not even during the Renaissance when there was, of course, a lot of em emphasis on individualism, but not of this kind because this kind of individualism in the late 18th century is increasingly related to the rise of uh, the commercial society, uh, the, uh, the kind of unprecedented expansion of trade and commerce, not only across Europe, but increasingly across the rest of the world. Right. And one of the central figures of your book and of the Enlightenment, too, one of the original rebels against it is Rousseau, uh, who acts in your book as a foil to the man we typically hold up as an emblem of the Enlightenment, Voltaire. Why do you think Rousseau is important to our understanding of today's global fractures, of today's resentments? Well, you know, he is really, in many ways, the first man to identify uh, the so-called left behind people or the people whose lives are disrupted by radical change imposed from above by, you know, top-down elites who are really not particularly accountable to the people whose lives they are radically reorganizing. So here is Rousseau coming to Paris from Geneva, a complete outsider in the city, who feels very marginalized, who feels very excluded. And then he also becomes aware that these intellectuals as a class are deeply infatuated by political power. So he finds himself, you know, recoiling into these kinds of notions of a whole community that it has to be defined very differently from the way these, these other Enlightenment philosophers are defining it, not through self-interest, not through uh, the pursuit of wealth and status, but through politics, through a kind of political community. And all these notions 
that we see today, whether it's nationalism or protectionism, drawing borders of citizenship, uh, which is based upon exclusion, you will find a lot of these ideas and ideologies prefigured by Rousseau in opposition to philosophers of the Enlightenment, most prominently um, Voltaire, who is himself a kind of, you know, um, a man who engages in business, who's friends with the kind of elites of his time, who's friends with the great modernizing despots, is an admirer of them. He thinks that change is important and it should come from above and who's actually not very concerned about the masses, who has contempt for ordinary people. And, you know, in many ways, some of the complaints against metropolitan technocratic elites that we hear today in America, in Britain and elsewhere really eerily echoes some of these complaints that Rousseau originally made. He is the one talking about equality. Um, people like someone like Voltaire is not interested in, in equality. He's definitely not interested in democracy. You know, democracy is not a, an idea that most people in, uh, in, in Paris or in America are deeply interested in at that point. You know, we have to remember these are members of an ambitious elite that wants to clear a space for itself, uh, that wants, in the case of America, independence from its colonial masters and wants the freedom to pursue its business interests. These people are not interested in democracy. I mean, this is, you know, some of the misconceptions I wanted to remove or challenge in this book. Uh, they, they're not even talking about democracy. It's Rousseau, he's saying, well, what about, you know, the people who are left behind? What about equality? The society that you are bringing into being is highly, highly unequal, and this is a big problem. He's the one who first focuses our attention on inequality. So, you know, democracy is, is something that people begin to struggle over after the French Revolution, during the French Revolution. And then, of course, you know, that struggle becomes more complicated, uh, much, much bigger all through the 19th century because many people who've been excluded, um, whether it's African-Americans or whether it's Native Americans or colonized peoples around the world, they start making their claims to be recognized as human beings, as people with dignity and people who ought to be respected. Uh, if you look at what Jefferson is writing about um, Native Americans or what Voltaire has to say about um, slaves or blacks uh, in general, uh, they are entirely contemptuous of, of, of the minorities, not to mention women. So how does masculinity fit into this argument of mass resentment? Rousseau was kind of a, a misogynist sometimes, Flaubert, Baudelaire, Nietzsche. All of these male thinkers and artists sort of, as you say, became the prophets of restless young men everywhere with their machismo and their, their dreams of violent male domination. It's a very important uh, part of my argument that what uh, we are witnessing today and what we have witnessed in the past is a crisis of masculinity. When masculinity is to assert yourself in the wider world, to find an identity, to become an individual through the assertion of your strength and through expressions of your confidence, often this benign-sounding project turns into dominating other people when it is met with frustration. Uh, it often turns into a project of degrading weaker peoples because that's the only way in which you can assert your strength. And that, unfortunately, for many people 
who feel left behind by the modern economy, who feel uh, betrayed by their elected representatives, um, it's very easy for them. The easiest thing for them is to channel their rage and frustration onto the people around them, people they feel they can dominate and push around. Uh, minorities have always been, always been made scapegoats for feelings of inadequacy and, and failure suffered by these young men in the past. And increasingly in, in, in recent decades, as more and more women enter the workplace, um, women are perceived as threats. So there are a whole lot of anxieties and fears that men suffer from today, whether it's white men in, in, in America or upper caste Hindus in, in India who have enjoyed a relative degree of power and, and confidence over several, several decades, if not centuries, and suddenly find themselves under siege, or at least that is their perception of their, of their situation. Even though they are still very powerful, they feel that they are being oppressed by these uppity, ambitious, assertive um, minorities and by women. It's not surprising or accidental at all that we see this explosion of misogyny across the world. You know, this is sadly now uh, embodied uh, most vividly by a man whose abuse of women, whose degraded, utterly horrific attitudes towards women did not prevent his election as the president of the United States. Right. Right. And it seems as though, like, on the whole, you know, these these young, disempowered, resentful young men, especially white men in the United States, seem to have the attitude that if, you know, if I can't have these opportunities, then why should you? And one thing that was really gratifying to me about your book is that instead of just focusing on ISIS or, you know, radical Islamic terrorists, you talked about some homegrown terrorists, white terrorists in the U.S. who seem to really epitomize this, like Timothy McVeigh? Well, I think, you know, in many ways, uh, he was the precursor to the angry white men who have become politically so significant in this in this election. Um, those feelings can erupt anywhere. And those feelings connect all kinds of unlikely people from terrorists of Al-Qaeda to white nationalists in America to cultural supremacists in, in Europe, that these people are, are, are more alike than we realize. We try to identify them through their affiliation with particular religious communities or populations or, 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 or countries, but we really have to see them as part of a global phenomenon of ressentiment where... Um, people feeling frustrated and resentful and, 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 and powerless uh, lash out blindly, violently. And it really does not matter whether you're born a Muslim or a Christian or a Hindu or a Sikh. Uh, you know, people of all different um, religious backgrounds are, are, are implicated in this kind of vengeful violence. And it's ironic, too, because... Those men who feel most left out of the modern world, you know, they might not have been in Voltaire's mind when formulating these ideas of democracy, but they were the ones who had more power than women or than religious minorities or ethnic minorities throughout history. And I want to play devil's advocate here for a second and ask, you know, the principles of the Enlightenment have brought us here in your estimation because they've denied opportunities to many people. But 
aren't those same principles the ones that undergird a lot of the progressive movements for equality that we've seen? Absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, the problem with uh, critiquing the Enlightenment, even uh, as moderately as I have, is that one quickly gets classified as a counter-enlightenment or an anti-enlightenment figure. You know, not even Rousseau was counter-enlightenment or anti-enlightenment. If you actually look at what he's saying, you know, he's saying, look, look, we are well past the age of of traditional hierarchy and, and, and traditional forms of authority. Our project is equality. What is the best kind of society that can realize this ideal of equality? So this is an argument within the larger framework of this new world that is coming into being, you know, what I call the modern. This is the advent of modernity. Uh, so he's very clear that there is no going back. You know, he talks a lot about the state of nature, but he's also very clear that there's no going back to it, you know, which is the mistake people now are committing when they talk about making America great again. Let's recover this lost community, which was, you know, uh, free of all foreigners and women knew their place. Uh, and equality is really the ideal that we have to work with. There is absolutely no going back. Uh, the challenge before us is how to extend the ideals formulated by a minority, uh, formulated by an elite, primarily for themselves, primarily for their own benefit, how to extend them to the majority that also desires them. That is the challenge facing us today. As you're right, though, it, it seems kind of depressing that, uh, quote, history seems to have come full circle instead of marching forward. So if we can't go back and we have to go forward and we can't really secede from the global world as Kamat or California would have us do, where's the hope here? I find a lot of hope in how people have suddenly become politicized in this country. I don't you know, live here. I'm a visitor. Uh, but I do observe it very closely, and I've I've been really heartened by the way people have responded to the election victory of Donald Trump. Um, there are public protests. There is a lot of resistance uh, from ordinary people, or from lawyers, from the country's democratic institutions as well. So I think this high degree of political awareness is the first prerequisite for you know any other thing that we might want to happen in the next four years or, or even, you know, the next 10 years or so. The fact that people are becoming politically aware, people realize that there are certain responsibilities of ethical citizenship, because it's been very disheartening, to be honest, to find uh, such a low degree of politicization in, in America all these decades, uh, certainly all the time that I've observed it, uh, and, and I think, you know, things are changing. And that's really, really, for me at least, a sign of great hope. So do you think revolution is still in the cards? Well, that may be going too far. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of where we are starting from, uh, what we are seeing is a kind of revolution. Since it's St. Patrick's Day, we've got a special segment from all of us here at The Scholar, our favorite works of literature from the Emerald Isle. We've got a list of our favorite Irish reads on the website, true, where you'll find plugs for Anne Enright, William Trevor, and Edna O'Brien, among 14 others. 
But this year, I bullied the editorial staff into joining me in the studio to tell you about their favorites themselves. I didn't even have to offer them Irish whiskey. Stick around to the end, because we've got a surprise for you, which might be just the thing to listen to at the end of a long Guinness-fueled day or weekend. So I love this guy, Kevin Barry. He's mostly known for his short stories, but he's written a couple of great novels, and one of them is City of Bohane. It came out a few years ago, and it takes place in this fictional, dystopian, near-future Irish city called Bohane. And it's a, really a book about these rival gangs, and it's right up my alley in kind of colorful patois and all the dialogue and colorful characters. And then the other cool thing about it is that he keeps referencing, like, real music. You know, in the middle of this scene, he mentions that this gang is playing, you know, a, a Trojan Records dub plate. And I've always wanted to actually go through and create a soundtrack that would accompany the novel. A book that I've always really liked is a novel by John McGahern. It came out in 2002 called by the lake. And it's a very quiet story of a couple, an Irishman and his wife, who returned to Ireland from having lived for a long time in England. And it follows them for one whole year. Nothing much really happens, but you just follow them as they see the seasons change and get to know the rhythms of life in this rural village in County Leitrim. Well, my favorite Irish poem, possibly poem in general, is Yeats's The Stolen Child. You feel like you are in the middle of this beautiful Irish landscape, like you're being led literally by the hand by these fairies down to this forest, into this magical, mystical land. You know, when I studied abroad in Ireland, we went up to Sligo, which is where Yeats spent the majority of his childhood, and it was this beautiful wooded area, you know, full of rolling hills and green glens, and it looked a lot like where I grew up. But you realize when you're studying Irish literature and you're studying Irish history that there is this problematic aspect of being an American and being removed from the history and the struggles of Ireland and romanticizing this gorgeous nation because you as an American did not have to live through the troubles. You didn't have to live through the Irish Revolution. And you're not to this day dealing with the ramifications of having your culture erased, being oppressed for centuries. Even though it's problematic to idealize Ireland and to buy into the fairy tale aspect, um, The Stolen Child is still one of my favorite poems because it is so evocative and because it's this form of escapism. Everybody tries to escape in some way <laughs> or another. And for me, it's Yeats. And for me, it's this poem. I came to uh, find out that I actually had never really read much Irish literature. The only thing that I could think of that I had read was Dubliners by James Joyce, but that was so long ago I couldn't even recall it. Um, so it was kind of a great shock to encounter Frank O'Connor and realize how fantastic he really is. I read Guests of the Nation, which was published in 1931. You know, this short story uh, in, I think it's, what, eight to ten pages, deals with so many huge philosophical and political issues in a very subtle way. Um, and the final paragraph is uh, so transcendent and just one of the great final paragraphs I've ever encountered. And I don't want to give anything away, but I would, I can't recommend it highly enough. 
I'm definitely going to run out and buy Frank O'Connor's collected short stories, which I've seen for years on the shelves, but for some reason never reached for, but I will now. It's really hard for me to pick my favorite works of Irish literature because it's unfair and unjust how much sheer literary talent is coming from such a tiny island. Um, And there's been a renaissance, too, in contemporary Irish writing with all of these small publishers coming out with really exciting, innovative work. But although it's hard to pick, I do have favorites. Young Skins by Colin Barrett and The Spinning Heart by Donald Ryan. Uh, Both of them are set in sort of the same world, a small rural Ireland that's been scarred by the financial boom that Ireland had and then fell from. And you slowly piece together the different stories of what happened. And gradually, all of these layers coalesce into a really messy portrait of life during a really tough time. Kind of fitting. So uh, thanks to my colleagues, Bob Wilson, Bruce Falconer, Steve Anderson, and Nolani Kirshner, who all told you about their favorite books. And thanks for joining us for Smarty Pants this week. Here's the little pot of gold I promised you at the end of the podcast. Sudip Bose, reading James Joyce's short story, Araby. I know that my colleagues have been talking a great deal about their favorite Irish works of literature. And I thought, what better than to actually read one? And I wanted to read the very first story of James Joyce's that I'd ever encountered, and that is Araby. It's a story that stayed with me all these many years, and I'd like to read it for you. North Richmond Street, being blind, was a quiet street, except at the hour when the Christian Brothers' school set the boys free. An uninhabited house of two stories stood at the blind end, detached from its neighbors in a square ground. The other houses of the street, conscious of decent lives within them, gazed at one another with brown, imperturbable faces. The former tenant of our house, a priest, had died in the back drawing room. Air, musty from having been long enclosed, hung in all the rooms, and the waste room behind the kitchen was littered with old useless papers. Among these, I found a few paper-covered books, the pages of which were curled and damp, The Abbot by Walter Scott, The Devout Communicant, and The Memoirs of Vidocq. I liked the last best because its leaves were yellow. The wild garden behind the house contained a central apple tree and a few straggling bushes, under one of which I found the late tenant's rusty bicycle pump. He had been a very charitable priest. In his will, he had left all his money to institutions and the furniture of his house to his sister. When the short days of winter came, dusk fell before we had well eaten our dinners. When we met in the street, the houses had grown somber. The space of sky above us was the color of ever-changing violet, and towards it the lamps of the street lifted their feeble lanterns. The cold air stung us, and we played till our bodies glowed. Our shouts echoed in the silent street. The career of our play brought us through the dark, muddy lanes behind the houses, where we ran the gauntlet of the rough tribes from the cottages, to the back doors of the dark, dripping gardens, where odors arose from the ash pits, to the dark, odorous stables, where a coachman smoothed and combed the horse, or shook music from the buckled harness. 
When we returned to the street, light from the kitchen windows had filled the areas. If my uncle was seen turning the corner, we hid in the shadow until we had seen him safely housed. Or if Mangan's sister came out on the doorstep to call her brother into his tea, we watched her from our shadow peer up and down the street. We waited to see whether she would remain or go in, and if she remained, we left our shadow and walked up to Mangan's steps resignedly. She was waiting for us, her figure defined by the light from the half-opened door. Her brother always teased her before he obeyed, and I stood by the railings looking at her. Her dress swung as she moved her body, and the soft rope of her hair tossed from side to side. Every morning I lay on the floor in the front parlor, watching her door. The blind was pulled down to within an inch of the sash, so that I could not be seen. When she came out on the doorstep, my heart leaped. I ran to the hall, seized my books, and followed her. I kept her brown figure always in my eye, and, when we came near the point at which our ways diverged, I quickened my pace and passed her. This happened morning after morning. I had never spoken to her, except for a few casual words, and yet her name was like a summons to all my foolish blood. Her image accompanied me even in places the most hostile to romance. On Saturday evenings, when my aunt went marketing, I had to go to carry some of the parcels. We walked through the flaring streets, jostled by drunken men and bargaining women, amid the curses of laborers, the shrill litanies of shop boys who stood on guard by the barrels of pigs' cheeks, the nasal chanting of street singers who sang a come all you about O'Donovan Rossa, or a ballad about the troubles in our native land. These noises converged in a single sensation of life for me, I imagined that I bore my chalice safely through a throng of foes. Her name sprang to my lips at moments in strange prayers and praises, which I myself did not understand. My eyes were often full of tears. I could not tell why. And at times, a flood from my heart seemed to pour itself out into my bosom. I thought little of the future. I did not know whether I would ever speak to her or not or, if I spoke to her, how I could tell her of my confused adoration. But my body was like a harp, and her words and gestures were like fingers running upon the wires. One evening, I went into the back drawing room in which the priest had died. It was a dark, rainy evening, and there was no sound in the house. Through one of the broken panes, I heard the rain impinge upon the earth, the fine, incessant needles of water playing in the sodden beds. Some distant lamp or lighted window gleamed below me. I was thankful that I could see so little. All my senses seemed to desire to veil themselves, and, feeling that I was about to slip from them, I pressed the palms of my hands together until they trembled, murmuring, O oh, love, O oh, love, many times. At last, she spoke to me. When she addressed the first words to me, I was so confused that I did not know what to answer. She asked me, was I going to Araby? I forget whether I answered yes or no. It would be a splendid bazaar, she said. She would love to go. And why can't you? I asked. While she spoke, 
she turned a silver bracelet round and round her wrist. She could not go, she said, because there would be a retreat that week in her convent. Her brother and two other boys were fighting for their caps, and I was alone at the railings. She held one of the spikes, bowing her head towards me. The light from the lamp opposite our door caught the white curve of her neck, lit up her hair that rested there, and, falling, lit up the hand upon the railing. It fell over one side of her dress and caught the white border of a petticoat, just visible as she stood at ease. It's well for you, she said. If I go, I said, I will bring you something. What innumerable follies laid waste my waking and sleeping thoughts after that evening? I wished to annihilate the tedious intervening days. I chafed against the work of school. At night, in my bedroom, and by day, in the classroom, her image came between me and the page I strove to read. The syllables of the word Araby were called to me through the silence in which my soul luxuriated and cast an eastern enchantment over me. I asked for leave to go to the bazaar on Saturday night. My aunt was surprised and hoped it was not some Freemason affair. I answered few questions in class. I watched my master's face pass from amiability to sternness. He hoped I was not beginning to idle. I could not call my wandering thoughts together. I had hardly any patience with the serious work of life, which, now that it stood between me and my desire, seemed to me child's play, ugly, monotonous child's play. On Saturday morning, I reminded my uncle that I wished to go to the bazaar in the evening. He was fussing at the hall stand, looking for the hat brush, and answered me curtly, Yes, boy, I know. As he was in the hall, I could not go into the front parlor and lie at the window. I left the house in bad humor and walked slowly towards the school. The air was pitilessly raw, and already my heart misgave me. When I came home to dinner, my uncle had not yet been home. Still, it was early. I sat staring at the clock for some time, and when its ticking began to irritate me, I left the room. I mounted the staircase and gained the upper part of the house. The high, cold, empty, gloomy rooms liberated me, and I went from room to room singing. From the front window, I saw my companions playing below in the street. Their cries reached me, weakened and indistinct, and, leaning my forehead against the cool glass, I looked over at the dark house where she lived. I may have stood there for an hour, seeing nothing but the brown-clad figure cast by my imagination, touched discreetly by the lamplight at the curved neck, at the hand upon the railings, and at the border below the dress. When I came downstairs again, I found Mrs. Mercer sitting at the fire. She was an old, garrulous woman, a pawnbroker's widow, who collected used stamps for some pious purpose. I had to endure the gossip of the tea-table. The meal was prolonged beyond an hour, and still my uncle did not come. Mrs. Mercer stood up to go. She was sorry she couldn't wait any longer, but it was after eight o'clock, and she did not like to be out late, as the night air was bad for her. When she had gone, I began to walk up and down the room, clenching my fists. My aunt said, 
I'm afraid you may put off your bazaar for this night of our Lord. At nine o'clock, I heard my uncle's latchkey in the hall door. I heard him talking to himself and heard the hall stand rocking when it had received the weight of his overcoat. I could interpret these signs. When he was midway through his dinner, I asked him to give me the money to go to the bazaar. He had forgotten. The people are in bed, and after their first sleep now, he said. I did not smile. My aunt said to him energetically, well, Can't you give him the money and let him go? You've kept him late enough as it is. My uncle said he was very sorry he had forgotten. He said he believed in the old saying, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. He asked me where I was going, and when I had told him a second time, he asked me, did I know the Arab's farewell to his steed? When I left the kitchen, he was about to recite the opening lines of the piece to my aunt. I held a florin tightly in my hand as I strode down Buckingham Street towards the station. The sight of the streets, thronged with buyers and glaring with gas, recalled to me the purpose of my journey. I took my seat in a third-class carriage of a deserted train. After an intolerable delay, the train moved out of the station slowly. It crept onward among ruinous houses and over the twinkling river. At Westland Row Station, a crowd of people pressed to the carriage doors, but the porters moved them back, saying that it was a special train for the bazaar. I remained alone in the bare carriage. In a few minutes, the train drew up beside an improvised wooden platform. I passed out onto the road and saw by the lighted dial of a clock that it was ten minutes to ten. In front of me was a large building which displayed the magical name. I could not find any sixpenny entrance, and, fearing that the bazaar would be closed, I passed in quickly through a turnstile, handing a shilling to a weary-looking man. I found myself in a big hall, girdled at half its height by a gallery. Nearly all the stalls were closed, and the greater part of the hall was in darkness. I recognized a silence like that which pervades a church after a service. I walked into the center of the bazaar, timidly. A few people were gathered about the stalls which were still open. Before a curtain, over which the words Café Chantant were written in colored lamps, Two men were counting money on a salver. I listened to the fall of the coins. Remembering with difficulty why I had come, I went over to one of the stalls and examined porcelain vases and flowered tea sets. At the door of the stall, a young lady was talking and laughing with two young gentlemen. I remarked their English accents and listened vaguely to their conversation. Oh, I never said such a thing. Oh, but you did. Oh, but I didn't. Didn't she say that? Yes, I heard her. Oh, there's a fib. Observing me, the young lady came over and asked me did I wish to buy anything. The tone of her voice was not encouraging. She seemed to have spoken to me out of a sense of duty. I looked humbly at the great jars that stood like eastern guards at either side of the dark entrance to the stall and murmured, No, thank you. The young lady changed the position of one of the vases and went back to the two young men. They began to talk of the same subject. Once or twice, the young lady glanced at me over her shoulder. 
I lingered before her stall, though I knew my stay was useless, to make my interest in her wares seem the more real. Then I turned away slowly and walked down the middle of the bazaar. I allowed the two pennies to fall against the sixpence in my pocket. I heard a voice call from one end of the gallery that the light was out. The upper part of the hall was now completely dark. Gazing up into the darkness, I saw myself as a creature driven and derided by vanity, and my eyes burned with anguish and anger. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.